Well, as always, church, it is good to be with you. If you're new or you're visiting, uh, my name is Tyler David. I'm one of the preaching pastors and elders here at the Austin Stone. We are glad that you're here. If you have a Bible, go and open up to Ephesians chapter 3. Take the Bibles out and open up to Ephesians chapter 3, or however we'll be looking at the scriptures. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. It'll be on the screen behind me throughout the entire service. Ephesians chapter 3. And today, tonight, we're continuing in our Far More Vision series. Our Far More Vision series. And if you're new and you're visiting, you have no idea what that is. What we're doing is taking six weeks, six weeks looking at the scriptures and seeing what are the six truths from the word of God that define us as a people of the Austin Stone. Who are we defined by the word of God? What makes us unique as a church, as a people? And as we do that, we're taking six weeks to look at all that God has done over the last 12 years. To look at the stories and the numbers and the stats of all that God has done in this community, through this community, for the sake of his name. The reason we're doing that is not to brag about our church, not to brag about any person or leader. We're doing this to brag about our God. To boast in all that he has done in this church. And the heart of this series, what the leaders and elders have been praying for for this series, is what God would do through this time as a church as we look at the word of God and who we are. And we look at what he's done in this church the last 12 years. That you and I would have this longing in us. This longing for more of what God has done. This longing that says, God, whatever it means for me, whatever it means for us, for you to do far more than we could ask or imagine, whatever it means, God, we're in. We're in. That's the heartbeat of this series. So last week we talked about how we're a God-centered church. We're a God-centered church because God himself is God-centered. And everything we do, everything we say, we want to point back to this Jesus. Point back to him. The goal of this church is so that Jesus would be loved, that he would be admired, that he would be honored, that he would be worshipped. And last week we found out that we'll never be a God-centered church, a Christ-centered church, until we are a people with Christ-centered hearts. That was last week. And this week we're learning about from the word of God that we want to be reliant on prayer. We want to be reliant on prayer, that in Christ we have this constant access to God in prayer. Constant access that we as a people are saying, we don't want to rely on self. We we, we don't want to depend on self. We've tried that. It doesn't work. We want to rely on God. We want to depend on him for his power. We have access to all this power through Christ as we pray. So let's look at Ephesians 3 together to see this power that God has for us. Ephesians 3. Verse 20 to 21, this is kind of the anchor text this entire series. Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. Now to him, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Tonight we're focusing on that statement that verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than anything we could ask. Anything we could ask, God is able to do far more than that. That Paul is trying to blow our minds the power of God, the ability of God. He's trying to make us realize that anything you could ask of God is easy for him. Anything you could ever ask him, easy. There's no difficult request for God. 
God has never heard a request and gone, sounds pretty complicated, I don't know. It's never happened. It doesn't happen for God. See, and you know that's Paul's intention by the way he describes his power. See, the text doesn't just say God's able to do all that we could ask. It doesn't just say God's able to do more than we could ever ask. It doesn't even say that God's able to do far more than we could ever ask. It says he's able to do far more abundantly, ever increasing than you could ever ask or think. That's the power of God. That's the ability of God. He's able to do anything you ask. And even if he shows up in that way, you're only scratching the surface of his power. The purpose of this statement is that you and I would pray more. You and I would be more bold in our prayers. That's the purpose of the statement. That you and I would ask God for spectacular things, knowing, knowing this is only a fringe of his power. It's only the fringes of his power that you can have confidence that anything you ask God, though it may feel impossible for you, though everyone may say it's impossible, it can never happen, that with God, it's easy for him, that you're not asking in vain. And what you find in the scriptures, what you find in the word of God is he tells us that all that power, all of his acts of might come through prayer. It's through prayer that God moves. When you read the scriptures over and over and over and over and over again, when God acts in power, you see his people praying. You see his people praying. You see God acts in power, and right alongside of it, his people are crying out to him. In the Old Testament, the pinnacle story of the Old Testament, if you've never read it before, is the story of Exodus. The story of Exodus is the pinnacle story of the Old Testament when God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. It's the pinnacle story because when you read this story, you begin to understand why. It's so spectacular. What God does, he does these mighty acts that you can see with your eyes and it's unbelievable. And so throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament and the New Testament, this story is referenced again and again and again. Because it has this, this prominence, this centerpiece in the story of God's redemption because of all that God did. See, God took a people who were enslaved for hundreds of years. They were enslaved for hundreds of years to the most powerful nation anyone had ever seen at that point in time, Egypt. And he used this unwilling leader in Moses who couldn't speak very well. And he used him to outdo a pharaoh. And that God sent all these plagues, these gnats and boils and locusts to destroy crops. He sent darkness and he sent death to Egypt. And what is crazy is that these people who have been slaves for hundreds of years, they didn't get out of slavery through a revolt, through some epic fight. They just walked out the front door like they owned the place. They just walked out like they were in charge, no fighting with all of Egypt's stuff. Because people in Egypt had given them their stuff because they were so terrified of all that God had done for them. They said, take this, please leave. So they walk out, and if that wasn't enough of God's power, they get to the Red Sea, Pharaoh changes his mind. He says, no, I want them back. Let's go get them. And they take the entire army after them, and they're at the Red Sea, and what happens? God parts it. Walls of water on either side, and they walk through on dry ground. Every single person gets through. Every single person gets through, and as soon as they're through, the Egyptian armies come through and the water falls on them, and they die, and God destroys their enemies. Now, when you read that story, it's so spectacular, it sounds like a movie. God's showing up in all these spectacular ways, these magnificent ways, and we find out the beginning of Exodus that it all started with people crying out to God. Exodus 2, verse 23 
During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. All over the Old Testament, that's the story. The people pray, God shows up in power. The people pray and battles are won and enemies are defeated and barren women have children. People are healed, lions' mouths are shut and mercy is distributed in abundance. Why? Because the people of God are praying. Same thing in the New Testament. Same exact thing in the book of Acts, the early church. You see God show up for people just like you, just like me. People who have believed in the gospel, believed in Christ. And God does these spectacular works. All this power and what you find every single time is the church is praying. Every time in the book of Acts, God shows up in power, the church has been praying. I'll give you a couple of examples. When the Holy Spirit came to the church for the very first time, they never had the Holy Spirit before the way we have him now. They never had him before, but Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to indwell them. And what happens? They begin to preach with boldness. Peter goes up and preaches. 3,000 people get saved in a moment. In a moment. 3,000 people who had not known God have been forgiven of their sins, trust in Christ. And they're saved. But what was the church doing when that happened? They were praying. Acts 1.14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. When this brand new church begins to face persecution for the first time, when this brand new church begins to have this love for one another, they see that there's this new community, they have this brand new relationships, and they have all this love for each other and all this generosity. The apostles are doing these great works of God among them. People are getting healed, and every day people are getting saved. Every day. Can you imagine that? Every day somebody new is trusting Jesus. What was the church doing when all this was happening? The church was praying, Acts 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Like I mentioned, this church began to face persecution. And began to realize following Jesus is not going to be easy. People in this city are against us. They don't like this, Jesus. And so all of a sudden the Holy Spirit shows up in power and they have this newfound boldness that they were terrified they were terrified, but the Holy Spirit shows up and the whole church, not just leaders, the whole church has this boldness to preach the word of God. What was the church doing when it happened? The church was praying, Acts 4.31. And when they had prayed, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Prayer is so important for the early church. That as the church grew, in Acts 6, the church is about 8,000 people, bigger than the Austin Stone. 8,000 people, and the apostles and leaders are overwhelmed with all the needs, and so they institute deacons to care for the needs of the church. Why do they do it? To care for the people, but they primarily do it because they need to be men, the leaders need to be men devoted to prayer. Look at Acts 6, 3 through 4. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. When God begins to arrange this crazy encounter between the apostle Peter and Cornelius. Cornelius is the very first Gentile believer, the non-Jew believer in the world, ever. 
And this, uh, this encounter, Peter preaches the gospel. He hears the gospel, believes it. His whole household is saved. But what was Peter doing when all of that began to take place? Peter was praying, Acts 10, 9. The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Last one. When God called Barnabas and Saul, also called Paul, when God called these two men and said, you take this gospel all the way to Rome. These two men who saw thousands of people come to Christ, these two men, Paul especially, who plan all these churches, lead people to Christ, the rest of the book of Acts is following Paul's missionary journeys throughout the Mediterranean. When all that happened, when that call began, when God said, I'm setting you apart for this work, what were they doing? The church was praying, Acts 13, 2 through 3. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. I could go on and on and on in the book of Acts. I could go on and on in church history. And what you always see happen is God moving in power as his people are praying, always. Story of the Austin Stone. That's our story as a church. When Matt Carter and that founding team came to Austin, all they had to, all they had to do was pray. And that's all they had. They didn't have a grand strategy or scheme or plan. It was just get in a, an apartment, 15 people start begging God to move. They had this crazy faith to say, God, would you do something so spectacular that no one could take credit other than you? You in this room, you are in fruit of that prayer. They prayed that prayer and God moved in power. And every time God has moved in power in this church, saved people, brought us to repentance, I can tell you, you may not have seen it, but people have been praying for that. People all over the city bent knees in prayer, begging God to move in power in this church. People all over this country praying for this church. See, God's power is always accompanied by his people praying. And there is no one who models this truth more than Jesus. There's no one who models this truth more than Jesus. There's no one who had the power that he did. I mean, he cast out demons. He healed people who were sick for years. He fed thousands of people with a loaf of bread and a couple of fish. He even had this teaching that had so much authority they'd never seen it before. Now, why did Jesus have this power? Jesus had unparalleled power because he had unparalleled devotion to prayer. Unparalleled power because he had unparalleled devotion to God and prayer. It cannot be overstated how much Jesus valued and practiced prayer. Before he begins his ministry, what does he do? 40 days, 40 nights, fasting and praying. Before he picks his 12 disciples, what does he do? He spends all night praying. Before he goes to the cross, what does he do? He spends hours praying. And over and over again throughout his ministry, he would get away from the crowds, people who needed him, people who needed his help, people who needed his preaching, who needed his healing. He would get away by himself and pray. Luke 5, 16. Luke 5, 16, it says, But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. See, it could be said that Jesus spent more time praying than doing. More time praying than doing. He was in constant fellowship with God, crying out to God, putting his cares onto God, because he knew the power for the work of God is not found in doing, but in praying. See, he doesn't buy the lie you and I so often believe. We think... That power's found in doing. That's why we pray very little. 
That's why most of our lives are the inverse of Jesus's. His was a lot of praying and some doing. Ours is a little praying and a lot of doing. We buy the lie that power is found in doing, but Jesus shows us, no, the power for God to do far more abundantly found in praying. And so when you look at his prayer life and our prayer life, you see something's off in us. Something's off in you. And here's what we do typically. When you and I figure out, okay, something's off in me, there's there's a disconnect between me and God, we tend to think and would want to think the problem is a mechanics issue. The problem is a how-to problem. That if someone just taught me how to pray, if I had a book or a manual to read on how to pray, then I'd be fine. Just tell me what to recite and I'll be fine. But can I tell you, that is fundamentally untrue. That is fundamentally untrue. Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. They asked him, Jesus, how do we pray? He said, this is how you pray. He modeled it for three years. For three years, they watched him model prayer. And so the very last night of his life, he pulls James, John, and Peter and says, fellas, pray for me. Fellas, I have sorrow over sorrow. Would you pray for me? And so these men who've been trained how to pray for three years, taught how, seen a model, they know how to pray. The king himself, Jesus says, can you pray for me? They sit there, they know how. And they're unable to. They fall asleep. They fall asleep. Why? Because there's a problem deeper in them that a how-to solution just can't fix. Just can't fix. And you and I know this in relationships intuitively. If you're dating someone or you're married, you know this intuitively. You can know exactly how you should communicate and still be unable to do it. Like you can know all the tools of how to communicate effectively in a relationship and still fail to do it. You can know, okay, for me to communicate well, I need to use I language, not you language. For me to communicate well, I need to talk about how I feel, not how you're terrible. Like, I don't need to do that. Now, we can have all the tools in the world, every book you could read, and then get in the moment, know what to do, know how to do it, and not be able to do it. Why? There's a deeper problem in us deeper problem in the relationship how-tos aren't going to fix it see the root of our prayerlessness and the root of Jesus's prayerfulness is not a mechanics issue it's not a mechanics issue it's a relationship issue it's a relationship issue Jesus is not able to pray like he does because he's really good at praying Like he knows all the ins and outs and how to do it. No, he prays the way he does because he's the perfect son of God. He sees God as his father and he loves him and he trusts him. That's why he prays the way that he does. You do not pray the way Jesus does unless you're talking to your father. Unless you're talking to your dad in heaven who you know is good and in control and provides for you and cares for you and loves you. That's how Jesus can keep praying even when the Father tells him no. That's how Jesus can keep praying even when the Father tells him no. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had prayed many times, spent many days in prayer, weeks in prayer, but the Garden of Gethsemane, he had never prayed like this before. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he is overwhelmed with the reality that he is about to go to the cross to die and suffer the weight of God's wrath and anger and fury for our sin. And it's overwhelming him. 
He's sweating blood. He knows what it means. He's crying out to God. God, is there any other way? Father, any other way? Let's do that. Any other way than the cross and to save our people? What does the Father say? The Father says, no. Jesus, there is no other way. And Jesus, even though he hears no in his most distressed moment, the moment of most turmoil in his soul, he hears no from God, no from his Father. Jesus keeps praying after that. Jesus is on the cross being crucified, and he's praying to his Father, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. He hears no, and it doesn't make him not want to pray anymore. He keeps praying even on the cross. Because Jesus knows something about his father. That even when the father says no to him, he's still accomplishing something good for him. That even when the father says no to him, he's accomplishing something good for him. That even when the father says no, he's still loving him. He's still present with him. He's still providing for him, taking care of him and teaching him. He's still there. Jesus knows this is how the Father loves his children, and Jesus loves his Father more than hearing yes. Jesus loves his Father more than hearing yes. And this is where our struggle to pray like Jesus actually lies. Our struggle to pray like Jesus lies in the fact that we don't know how to pray to a Father. That you and I have tried, a lot of you have tried praying to God. You've tried praying to a father. You've gone all in on something. You ask God, God, would you give this to me? You've gone all in. God, I want you to give me this really good thing, this really godly thing. And you've asked God, you've pleaded with him, you've gone all in, and you have heard no. Not audibly, but you've seen no in your life. He didn't do what you asked him to. So what happens is you're hurt. What happens is you're confused. You begin to have these thoughts How can you love me the way you claim to and say no to me? How can you care for me the way you claim to and yet bring this circumstance that I can't see how it's good for me? But like any good father, like any good father in this room, any good father in this room knows that saying no to your children is as important and good and loving as saying yes to them. Any good father knows that saying no to your kids is as important and as loving and as good and as right as saying yes to them. My little girl, Elle, is a very sweet and sensitive little girl. So like the way she's wired when she gets hurt or scared or distressed, it doesn't come out in anger or her being stubborn. It comes out in sadness and in tears, typically. So as she's gotten bigger and she's able to articulate to me how she's feeling, recently she started telling me, how she feels in describing it really well, and I'll tell her no. This happened a couple times. I've told her no, and she's, tears are streaming down her face. She's crying so hard, and she'll say, Daddy, you hurt my feelings. Daddy, you hurt my feelings. Can I tell you what her disposition is? Her disposition in those moments is to become cold towards me. That she feels real hurt and real pain that my decision caused. Real hurt and real pain and you know what she, the reason she gets cold towards me in those moments? Because she doesn't want a daddy. She wants something more manageable. 
She doesn't want a daddy in that moment. She wants something and someone more manageable. She wants someone with less influence and less authority and less ability to reach into her heart like that. You're in this room, you know, some of you know how great a father can be who loves you enough to hurt you sometimes and wound you for your good and say no to you for your good. Some of you have never had that before. That all you know a father to do is to hurt you with no explanation. And can I tell you, my little girl in those moments when she's hurt by me and me saying no, she can't understand that I'm loving her in that moment. That me saying no to her is as love for her. I'm serving her. I'm caring for her. I haven't gone anywhere. My affections have not decreased at all. I love her. I'm there for her. But she doesn't want a father in that moment. She wants something more manageable. But what I'm trying to teach my daughter is that even when she, I tell, no and she's, tell her no and she's hurt, I don't want her to cry and run away. I want her to cry with me. Her, what she used to do a lot, and she's getting better at this, is as I'm kind of teaching her, instructing her what I'm like, I would hurt her and then she would run to mom or run away. She'd pull away from me and I'm telling her, L, I want you, even though you're hurting, hurt with me. I know I caused you pain. I know it's real, but hurt with me. Because here's what I want from my daughter. I want her to love our relationship more than hearing yes from me. I want her to value our love more than me saying yes to every request. And this is exactly why your prayers can be so often seldom and sporadic. It's because you don't want a father. You want something more manageable. You don't want this father who's going to be able to reach into your heart in ways that no one else can. This father who wants you to love him more than his stuff. This father who's able to do far more abundantly when he says yes and when he says no. But because we struggle with this father, you and I begin to pray differently towards him. See, your prayer life is a window into your relationship with God. It really is. Almost more than anything else in your life, your prayer life kind of reveals what your relationship with God is like. So a lot of us don't pray to God our Father. We pray to God as our business partner. And so your prayer life looks something like this. It's no longer about a relationship. It's about a transaction. It's about sharing resources. So you find yourself praying a lot when you need something. When you need something, you'll pray to God. When you want something, you'll pray to God, and especially if it's a business partner, when you say you want something, you, you begin to make promises, right? God, I really want this, and you begin to promise stuff like, I'll be better, I'll, I'll go to church more. Oh, God, I really want this, I'll be better, I won't do this sin again, or I'll be nicer, or I'll get better at my grades, or at my job, or whatever. You, be, you begin to make promises. He's a business partner. You begin to not share anything with him about you. Because with a business partner, you just share resources, not how you're doing. You're not vulnerable. And so what happens, you'll pray a lot when you need a resource, but as soon as you get that resource, or as soon as God doesn't come through the way you want him to, your praying ceases because he's a business partner. It's about transactions. Others of you, you don't pray to a business partner, you pray to this old friend. So God becomes this old friend who you used to pray all the time to. Like some of you in here used to have this vibrant prayer life with God, but over time, what began to happen? You got busier, new relationships, new friends, new passions, new responsibilities, and this relationship has faded to where now all you can really talk about in your prayer life is religious small talk. 
You say all the right things like, God, glorify your name, but you don't mean it. God, forgive me of your sins, but you can't name one. And God becomes kind of like that old friend you used to have where you always say, hey, nice to see you. Let's get lunch sometime soon. You never do. Text you later. Never going to text them. Like that kind of thing. That's what God becomes in your prayer life. And so what happens, you, some of you have said this statement, God, I'll really go all in and pray more once this busy season calms down. Once it gets a little less crazy, then I'll be serious. We begin to treat God like an old friend that when you finally get around him, you finally do pray. It's just religious small talk. You just say all the right things. After about 38 seconds, you're looking for a way out. But others of us don't pray to a business partner, an old friend. We pray to this unavoidable family member. This person you, you can't get away from. This God you can't get away from but everything remains superficial. So it's, it's kind of one of those like family relationships where it's kind of tense, but as long as people are in the room, everything's fine. Like as long as people are in the room with you and God, y'all are good. There's no tension. As long as you're at this big service, y'all are fine. As long as you're, you're in, even in community and you're praying with people who are in the community, you're fine. But as soon as you get one-on-one and you're honest, all that anger, all that hurt, all that pain, all the abandonment you have felt with God comes rushing in. And so you have this kind of disposition where you're like, I'm never going to roll on God. I'm just going to keep him at a safe distance. And your prayers are superficial because you don't see him as father. And on and on I could go about the different ways in our prayer lives we begin to show that we don't want a father. We want something more manageable. And the reason Jesus can pray the way he did is because he didn't have these issues with God the Father. Jesus never wanted just resource from them. He wanted a relationship with them. Yeah, they were on mission together. But the relationship was so much more than that. See, him and his father were close all the time, every season. It was never living off old fumes of what used to be. There was no distrust, no disunity, no obstacle in their love for one another. This is why Jesus can keep praying even if he hears no because the Father is his prize. The Father is his goal. That's what he wants because all the longings that he has, he knows only the Father can satisfy me. His stuff can't. All the longings you have. You have these innate longings for significance, for meaning, for love, for acceptance. You have all these desires that you cannot snuff out. And they're only met in God, not his stuff. But we buy the lie thinking, if God says no to my request, then I can't be happy. And Jesus says, I'm going to trust him no matter what he says, but I can be happy all the time because I have the Father. He's the one that meets my longings and my needs. And this is why Jesus came, because he came to be the son and the child you and I could never be. And then he died on a cross for everyone who would call on his name. Why? So that we could have the exact same relationship with God. Not some watered down version, not some JV version, but the exact same relationship with God. Exact same. Jesus says, I want you to share in what it means to be a child of God. That's why he shed his blood for us. So Romans 8.14 says, don't turn there. It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, and heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. That text just said, you have been saved to pray like Jesus. Same spirit, same father, and it says the same cry to God, Abba, Father. You're not saved to pray to a business partner or some old friend or some family member. You're saved to pray to your father who loves you and cares for you even if he says no. This father, you were made to have all these longings, these thirsts in you to be quenched in him. If that wasn't enough, if it wasn't enough to have God Almighty as your dad, as your father, Jesus says, this father that now is your father is going to respond to you in power the way he did for me. John 14, 12 says this. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus tells his church, he tells us, you're going to do greater works than I did. Isn't that crazy? Jesus Christ just said, you're going to do greater works than I did. What does he mean? Not that you're going to be greater than Jesus, but that we as a people are going to see more power in our lives and ministry than Jesus saw in his. That's what he said. And what's crazy is he makes that claim and then he doesn't say, so start planning. So start organizing. So start rallying people. Start thinking and dreaming. Start doing a whole lot. What what does he say? Start asking. You're going to do greater works than I did. Start asking me for power. And in that text, what's the purpose of prayer? The purpose of prayer is so that whatever we ask in his name would glorify the Father and the Son. That Jesus would be worshipped, that he would be praised. Prayer is not for you and your purposes. Prayer is for God and his purposes. That's what it's for. And so if we are ever going to be the sons and the daughters God has made us to be in Christ, we have to grow in our reliance on prayer. We have to grow in our reliance on prayer. And can I tell you, it's going to take time for that to happen. None of you are going to pray like Jesus tomorrow. None of you are going to pray like Jesus tomorrow. Much like like a marathon, it's going to take time to get there. If you want to run a marathon, you can't just run it tomorrow. You have to train for 26.2 miles. You have to train. You have to increase the mileage every week. You have to train and push your pace and, and get better to the point where finally, after some time, after intentionality, after training, you can run 26.2 miles. That was the case for Jesus in his prayer life. That was the case for Jesus in his prayer life. See, though Jesus was 100% God, he's also 100% man. And what that means is he had to learn how to pray. He had to learn how to pray. See, the Bible is basically silent about the 18 years of Jesus' life from 12 to when he starts his ministry. Basically silent. But what we do know from Luke chapter 2, that during those 18 years, Jesus was learning and growing and getting ready for his ministry. He had to learn. He's 100% man. He had to learn how to read. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but Jesus didn't come out of the womb as an infant and go, cool book, already read it. Like, that didn't happen. That's not who Jesus was. He was 100% man. He had to learn how to read. He had to learn the Bible. He had to learn how to pray. He had to learn how to pray. So during those 18 years, do you know what Jesus was probably doing? Stretching himself in his prayer life. 
Start with three minutes, then five minutes, then 20 minutes, then an hour, then maybe a whole day. Fasting one day, then two days, and maybe a week. So that by the time he gets to his public ministry, 18 years later, he's able to fast 40 days and 40 nights. That, that he's able to pray the entire night without falling asleep. He got there because he trained, he sought it out. And the same is true for us. If you're in Christ, you need to start stretching that prayer muscle, so to speak, and begin pushing yourself forward to a goal that you have. Some of you in here have probably never actually prayed a heartfelt prayer before. Maybe you've been to a service before and you've recited something or you've even said kind of Christian jargon, but you've never had a moment where your heart really cried out to God as your father. We really believe that through Jesus, he can actually be your dad. All your sins are forgiven. If that's you, you've never actually prayed before. The great promise of the Father is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And you should pray your first prayer tonight. Because the crazy thing about God is your very first cry to him, he responds. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Your first cry, he responds as if you've been praying forever. But others of you who have trusted Christ already... You need to grow in the quantity and quality of your prayers. The quantity and quality of your prayers. You need to stretch yourself. So starting at a minute of praying is not unspiritual. Start with a minute. Work to three, five, ten, twenty, and work your way up. Stretch yourself in the length that you devote yourself to prayer. Don't just start with driving on the way to some place and praying. But then start waking up even earlier than you're supposed to and begin to spend that time praying. And not just in quantity, but we need to grow in our quality of praying. So can I tell you, like, you can pray for things. It's totally fine. You can pray for stuff. That's totally fine. But let me be honest with you. Those are beginning prayers. Those are beginning prayers. So, yeah, you may start. Your first prayer may be, Sovereign God, give me that parking spot right there. That's what I want. Destroy those cars in front of me. Park park them. That's the spot I want, Father. I've prayed that prayer before. I really have. And one time in Central Market, I prayed that prayer. I said, God, I don't know why I'm praying this, but I just want to pray. God, can you, can you give me a front row spot? Totally did. It was awesome. But guess what happened? But guess what happened? I get out of the car, and I literally go, man, that's awesome. I got a front row spot. And immediately, a bird pooped on my head. <laughs> it was unbelievable. I was like, and thank you for that. Came at a cost. Didn't see that coming. Like, that's how it happened. You can start there. That's totally fine. But can I tell you, over time, you should move to prayers like, God, would you make my heart malleable? Would you make my heart soft towards your word that I wouldn't read something that you call sin and begin to say there's no way that's sin? That, yeah, you can pray for a house, but eventually you're going to want to pray for something more eternal, like someone who you know who doesn't know Jesus coming to Christ. Because that house you're going to lose, but that friend who comes to Christ you keep forever. You keep forever. So the quality of your prayers need to grow to things that are eternal and significant and for other people, not just you. Some of you need to start praying in community. You need to pray with your roommates, pray with your missional community. When we as a campus gather together for corporate prayer, you need to go to that and pray. Some of you need to get crazy and start fasting. Some of you need to get crazy and pray all night. But wherever you are, whatever your step is, whatever it looks like for you to obey God, we're going to stretch yourself in prayer. We need to do that as a people because if we want to see God do far more, we've got to be a people who pray. 
God's power is always accompanied by his people praying. So let's be children who open our hearts up again and begin to ask God for big things. Let's be children of though you may have heard no, and though you may have been hurt, though you may be wounded right now. And there's so much turmoil in you and emotional trauma in you because you can't understand why God would say no to you. You're going to be sad, but would you be sad with God? Would you cry with this God? He's not asking for you to have it all together. He's just asking you to trust him. And the rest of us, let's be children who look at all that God has done the last 12 years all the people saved, all the people baptized, all the missionaries sent, and let's look at it and go, I can't believe God did that. But like good children, what do kids always say when their dad does something awesome? Daddy, do it again. Daddy, do it again. These last 12 years, though they've been incredible, we're only scratching the surface. You're able to do far more abundantly than anything I could ever ask. So God, would you save more people? Would you save more people? Would you plant more campuses? Would you send more people to the nations? Would you produce more love for each other? Would you produce more love and care for the poor? Would you make us a people that are merciful? God, Daddy, would you do it again? Glorify your name again. And you don't know what he's going to do. He's our Father. He'll decide what's best. But I don't want to be a people who didn't see the work and the power of God because we refused to talk to our Father. Because we bought the lie that power was found in doing a lot of stuff when really power is found in praying to our God. And he is of such quality and value that when you get to know him, even if he says no to some things, the praying will not be in vain because you get to know your father in the process. So may we be a people reliant on prayer like he's made us to be. Let's pray together. Just the quietness of this moment seems fitting for us, for you, in your chair, in the quiet, to pray. In the quietness of your heart, begin to pray. Begin to confess to God where you're at. That if you're in here and you've never prayed before, you've never really talked to God as your father before, you never believed this Jesus could die for you before, would you ask him to save you? Would you ask him to give you faith that Jesus is the only way back to the one you were made for? Would you ask God for power to kill the sin in your life that keeps overwhelming you? Would you ask God for power to have faith to believe that even that sin, even that sin, the one you're thinking of, that Jesus' blood is powerful enough to forgive that? that if you're in here and you're wounded and you've asked God so many times for good things and you feel like he said no every time, would you be honest with him? Would you cry with him? Would you ask for faith to trust him though you don't know what he's doing? Would you remember that your father is taking care of you and accomplishing far more abundantly than all you could ask even when he says no? Father, there is none like you. There is nothing on earth that compares to you. And we have all of these longings, all of these desires. And God, we would be coming to you for your stuff, thinking that would make us happy. God, forgive us. 
Forgive us, we've been deceived. We thought your stuff would make us happy. We thought you saying yes would be all that we needed. God, we were wrong. God, we were wrong. Jesus, you were right. The Father is all that we need. The Father's the one we're made for. He's the daddy we've been longing for. That he's made this way to know him through all of your work, Jesus, that we can be bold and confident no matter how well or how much we pray because, Jesus, we have our standing because of how well and how perfect you pray. So, God, make us a people who trust you. God, make us a people who pray and ask you for great things, knowing that we're just scratching the surface of your power knowing that nothing is difficult for you and that God, if you say yes, praise your name and God, if you say no, praise your name. Because God, you are the best gift we could receive. So God, let us see you show off your power so we can tell this city and tell the nations how great, how great our God is. God, we ask these things in the mighty name of the crucified and risen King Jesus. Amen. Amen. Church, let's stand together and sing to our God.